in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state in three well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. You know how we think Organize the hood under our chain banners Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas FBI spying on us through the radio antennas And them hitting cameras in the street like watching society With no respect for the people's right to privacy I take a slug for the cause like Huey P While all you finny niggas try to copy Master P I wanna be free to live Able to have what I need to live Bring the power back to the street where the people live We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons Dying over money and relying on religion for help We do for self like ants in a colony Organize the wealth into a socialist economy A way of life based off the common needs And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seeds Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty to end be running with gas. Rather get shot in their back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my raps. It's documented. I Minute. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathe in it. That was Police State by Dead Prez, and you are listening to Indigo Radio every Sunday at noon on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, which is also streaming live online at WVEW.org. We are a group of educators here at Indigo Radio seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And this show is recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Hi, everyone. This is Anna for Indigo Radio. And today we are going to air an hour-long interview with journalists and prison abolitionists Victoria Law and Maya Shenoir. I had an opportunity to sit down with them over Zoom this past week. In 2020, they came out with a book entitled Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Prison Reform. This book details the way in which the prison extends into other parts of our lives and how harmful, quote unquote, reforms can actually be. And in the Brattleboro community, myself and another advocate at the Women's Freedom Center actually ran a five-week book study of Prison by Any Other Name. This uh, interview is an hour. We're going to play it uninterrupted. Thanks so much for joining us this Sunday on Indigo Radio. 
Where I would like to start is just to have you both introduce yourself. That would be great. I'm Maya Shenwar, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Truth Out, which is a progressive news organization. And I co-authored this book with Vicky Law, Prison by Any Other Name, which we'll be talking about. I also wrote another book about prisons and uh, co-edited an anthology about the police. And what brought me into this work, the work about incarceration, was a few things. The precipitating moment where I realized I wanted to write about it was I had a friend who was incarcerated prior to being deported and was my best friend from high school. And I visited him in jail and I had never been in a jail before. And I went with his mom and he was about to be deported. His mom, for various reasons, was not being deported, even though the rest of the family was. And it struck me that we were across the wall, like talking on a phone at the jail. And she was about to not see her son for 10 years and she couldn't hug him. And it just struck me that inhumanity of the system like the kind of punishment and violence that that was struck me so hard even though I didn't know much about it Mm -hmm. and so then I started I started reading about it started kind of like trying to unravel the the system you know for myself went through very long years long (laughs) learning process before I think I even be able to was able to grasp the immensity of the system. I guess the other early precipitating factor for me was that in high school, I sort of stumbled into being involved with this radical anti-war organization. And the person who coordinated it, who was, I guess, my mentor and still kind of my mentor, was always going to prison for various political imprisonment reasons and had a really strong analysis of all imprisonment being political and that mm-hmm. made a big impression on me and actually after I went in, after I went to college I ended up moving into her old bedroom while she was in prison for one of her prison terms so I that was that was with me and then I guess the last thing that really drove me into being committed to this work was my sister started going to jail and prison when she was in high school and just kept going in and out of prison and jail for the next 14 years so it was it was all of those personal moments which I think is true for a lot of people that drove me into it and then the learning kept me there and the journalism kept me there and just the more people I interviewed the more I was like the entire thing has to change Mm -hmm. yeah thanks for that yeah and Vicky so similar to Maya I got involved in prison issues through my friends in high school so I went to one of the types of schools that we would now call a school to prison pipeline school but back then we didn't have that kind of language or terminology or understanding. They were simply large high schools, which were mostly black, brown, and immigrant. They were under-resourced in New York City and its boroughs. 
School police are run by the NYPD, the New York Police Department. They're not run by the Department of Education. So these are essentially police that just happen to work in schools. Um, there was a lot of violence. There, was, there were very large classrooms and it was the perfect recruiting grounds for gangs. Gangs were recruiting among people who were not seeing very much future or opportunity in staying in this overcrowded high school setting. And so my friends joined gangs one by one and two by two. They dropped out of high school. They got arrested for gang-related activities. And then not having family, not coming from families with money, they could not afford bail. So they were sent to Rikers Island, which is an entire island in New York City that is a jail. We don't have money for good schools in New York City, but we have money for an entire jail island. And so I started going to visit my friends. And I also started reading about incarceration because it was suddenly this new thing that it just wedged itself into my life and the lives of my friends. And what I was reading and what I was seeing on these three times a week visits just matched up so perfectly. It was mostly people who are black, brown, immigrant, people without resources, people who were denied opportunities, who came from low-income communities that had been under-resourced and over-policed. And nobody was there because they were Jeffrey Dahmer or Bernie Madoff. Nobody had, you know, been a serial killer or chopped people up or stolen millions of dollars from retired people. You know, the way that the news would make you believe that this entire island is just full of people who are somehow a threat to everybody else's safety. But instead, it was people who had, by and large, been denied opportunities to do other things. And this included my friends, some of whom had committed violence and harm to other people, but again, would not have done that had there been other avenues available that they could see, especially when you're 16, 17, 18, everything is like now, 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 not necessarily like, oh, but if I get through high school and then I go to college, then I can somehow claw my way through this lack of opportunity and create my own opportunities. Uh, when people are teenagers, they don't think that. Um, so in college, I started looking into what women in prison were doing around resistance and organizing. And what I found was that women often had a different set of priorities when they went to prison than their men, uh, their male counterparts did. For instance, they were more concerned about parenting because they tended to be the primary caretakers of their children. And so when they went to prison, they had to worry more about where their children ended up particularly because they might, their children were five times more likely to end up in foster care. They were more likely to be worried about reproductive health care because obviously that was an issue that was not necessarily uh, thought about in prison medical systems. And so there were different ways of resisting and organizing. And from there, I started reporting on these issues, which is how I met Maya, was through reporting through Truth Out. And so I've written a couple of books about prison issues. My first book specifically looked at resistance and organizing in women's prisons. It's called Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women. And it was based on about eight years of research of writing directly to women inside, asking them what their priorities are, what their issues were, the actions they were taking, and what they knew about other resistance and organizing in women's prisons, and then looking at this history that had been buried by and large because people weren't looking at it as resistance and organizing. From there, I just continued to report on prison issues, and eventually Maya and I teamed up to write Prison by Any Other Name. 
I was watching a conversation that you two held together about the book. You know, I didn't know this, but um, the book came out last year, but you said that you had started writing the book about four years ago. I think even before you said it between yourselves, I was like, wow, it came out at the exact right moment. And you both kind of talked about that because here we have a lot of communities talking about defund movement, um, defunding the police. Of course, ongoing conversations about police brutality, a lot about community safety. And here in our own community in Brattleboro, we just held a what was called a community safety review, which took a number of months. And it is connected to defund movements and looking at the harm that not only police, but but other systems are doing to people. And so your book really came out at such an opportune moment to talk about these issues. And we here in this community facilitated a book study with your book. And it was through the Women's Freedom Center, which is the local domestic and sexual violence organization that I work with. And myself and another advocate there facilitated this public group with the book. So I would love for you to first, yeah, talk about what was going on four years ago when you started thinking and and writing about this book. So we actually got the idea in early 2016, five years ago, and it came out of, so this was the Obama administration, and it came out of this kind of surge of bipartisan conversation around criminal legal system reform. The conversations that were happening at that point were very much about the idea that this was an issue that quote unquote, both sides could unite around. Republicans and mainstream Democrats and liberals could all come together and have this united perspective that the system needed to change. And everyone was saying, end mass incarceration. But when you looked closer at the types of reforms they were proposing, they were A, either very, very minor. So they were saying, you know, we should slightly shorten the sentences of nonviolent first time drug offenders or something like that, or they were actually expanding the system. So developing so-called alternatives like electronic monitoring, like carceral drug treatment centers, mandated psychiatric hospitals, sex worker rescue programs. And so all of these types of alternatives actually sweep more people into the system because they're not only offered to a certain number of people who might otherwise be incarcerated, they're also thrust upon people who might not otherwise be under physical control of the state. They might have their charges dropped or be sentenced to something much more minor. We also write about the increased use of probation as not just an alternative to incarceration, but just an expansion, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there are even more people on probation in this country than there are people in jails and prisons. So we were seeing this trend toward what we were thinking of as prison light. And we were especially worried about it because we saw a lot of liberals and even progressives jumping on board because everyone 
loves a good unity story. You know, everyone loves the idea and that, you know, you could unite with conservatives and the Koch brothers were on board with the ACLU and Grover Norquist was on board with Van Jones and it's like, yay. <laughs> and it was like, really, you're uniting behind some really scary reforms that could expand the system. And the other thing is that most of these reform proposals were actually not taking into account the roots of the system. So looking at the fact that the police themselves are grounded in white supremacy, grew out of slavery and slave patrols, that prisons also came out of those origins. No one's talking among that group. No one was talking about the roots of the system in capitalism or worker suppression or you know the early origins of the system that, that relate to ableism and the intersections with psychiatric institutionalization. So all those conversations are kind of muted. There are these sort of gestures toward racial equity, but just in kind of like evening sentencing disparities, not addressing the core white supremacy of the system. And so we wanted to write this book to bring a lot of those issues to light and also kind of shine a path toward different ways of, of approaching transformation of the system. Mm -hmm. There's a part that I love. I'm just going to read this. I wonder, Vicki, if you want to expand on this too. There's a part in the introduction where you're, yeah, you're talking about the reforms or the, the problem with reforms. And you say, innovation in itself is no guarantee of progress. In so many cases, reform is not the building of something new, it is the reforming of the system in its own image, using the same raw materials, white supremacy, a history of oppression, and a toolkit whose main contents are confinement, isolation, surveillance, and punishment. Vicki, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about that and if there's any like example from the book that really helps like explain that continuation of control and punishment in these tentacles of the prison industrial complex. Sure. Um, as Maya said, we don't think about these reforms in the context and the history of all of these other oppressions. We think of them as, oh, this is going to make some things better for people, some people right now. So, I mean, prisons themselves started as a reform to brutal physical punishments and beheadings and executions, move it along a couple of centuries to the mid 19th century and women's prisons emerged again as a reform to keeping women in attics and basements and, you know, adjoining cells in men's prisons where they were subjected to solitary confinement, brutal punishments, uh, sexual violence from both the staff and the incarcerated men around them. So the idea was to build a separate women's prison for them instead of saying, well, why are we putting women in these horrific conditions in the first place? And what ended up happening was when there was a separate women's prison unit or prison, so either a building unto itself or a separate prison, judges then became less reluctant to sentence women to prison. So whereas in the past, they might decide, well, Mary Smith continues to burglarize houses or continues to, you know, pilfer from her employers or whatever, but we don't want to send her 
to this men's prison where she will be placed in a cell by herself, not allowed to speak to anybody or conversely be subject to sexual violence by the staff and the other prisoners around her. And a judge might look at Mary Smith and be like, okay, even though you have a history of pilfering the silverware or burglarizing houses, we're going to let you go again because we don't want to send you to this place. And once women's prisons were built, judges suddenly lost that reluctance. They said, well, you go there now. Like, I'm not sentencing you to rape and possible death. I'm just sentencing you to incarceration. And those places were equally brutal. Uh, Women were subjected to dousing in cold water. They were put in solitary confinement. They were given all sorts of brutal punishments, often for very gendered actions or gendered quote unquote violations. Women would be subjected to being ducked in cold water for being caught masturbating, which Mm -hmm. did not happen in their men's prisons. So this reform basically just reformed this idea that you need to take people from place A, which is brutal and terrible and violent and might cause death, and you put them in place B, but you have not changed any of these underlying conditions, Mm -hmm. you know, in there, you have not changed this punishment paradigm. So what we're saying in our book is what we don't want is to start to take apart the physical jails and prisons, take some of the bricks out, take some of the bars off, take off some of the fences, but then take all these things and build something else over here with these same materials, with that same underlying paradigm. One example that's very illustrative of this is electronic monitoring, in which basically you're taking this person out of the physical jail or you're removing the physical jail and what you're doing is you're creating a jail around them or you make their home their jail. So under electronic monitoring, a person is placed, uh, is given an electronic shackle that has a GPS device that tracks their every movement and it's accompanied by home confinement or basically house arrest. And unlike being sheltered at home or being quarantined, you actually need prior approval from a probation officer or an electronic monitoring company in order to leave your house. And you need to tell them specifically where you are going to go and what time you are going to go. And they get to say, yes, you can go to the grocery store. Yes, you can pick up your child. No, you cannot go to your child's basketball game. No, you cannot go to your mother to to see your mother for her birthday. Uh, Yes, you can buy toilet paper. No, you cannot go to the library. So every little movement gets approved or disapproved. And if you stray from that, you're threatened with being sent back to the jail or prison. So in a sense, people are still being surveilled and confined and monitored and threatened with even more punishment if they violate any of these norms. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we look at it this way, we have not taken apart the logic of prisons and said, what do people need in order to Mm -hmm. survive and thrive? Instead, what we're saying is, how can we take them out of the physical space and put them in the space that is not a physical building, but still has all of this logic of control Mm -hmm. and punishment? There's an interesting part in your book, and it's, it's actually off of this electronic monitoring that really stuck out to me that I wanted to ask you about, because this leads to the question of how do we figure out what, what we do support or don't, what reforms we try and get behind, what we don't. And it came up with this example that you used in Chicago, where there is this grassroots campaign to get rid of pretrial incarceration and bail. And so it's like a bail reform. And they consider it like this landmark thing. But then what you all point out is that it also, though, led to the expansion of electronic monitoring to people that wouldn't have been on that. That really struck out to me because 
the conversation around like bail reform is something is seen as like really positive. And I, and so it brings up this question of how do we then figure out what to support or what to get behind? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that abolishing money bail is really, really important. And that is a reform that in its best form is really anti-carceral and definitely not a quote-unquote reformist reform. Like it's the kind of reform that will hopefully result in many fewer people being behind bars. And the thing we saw in Chicago, so I was part of the effort that initially founded the Chicago Community Bond Fund, although I haven't been extremely involved in it uh, for a couple of years. But the thing that we tried to do differently than some other bond funds was to say, our goal is to abolish money bond and end pretrial incarceration. So it's not just about abolishing money bond because theoretically they could just keep everybody in jail without a bond, you mm-hmm. know, and say people are too dangerous to get out. And so that's the long-term vision. And I think what's what's happened in Chicago and this, we've definitely seen this over the past year with COVID where initially a lot of people were released from Cook County Jail and put on electronic monitoring. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of dynamics with that, all kinds of things that happened. But ultimately, it expanded the number of people on monitoring. It grew the number of monitors. The county bought more monitors. And then the jail population has started going back up, back up, back up. And the the monitoring is not going down. So there are still high numbers of people on monitoring, even as there are increasingly high numbers of people in jail again. So I think that the answer there is not don't do bond reform because it's absolutely essential. But the lesson is to always be coupling bond reform with efforts against electronic monitoring. And actually, the Chicago Community Bond Fund recently was part of an effort to pass a big reform bill in Illinois, which included ending money bail in Illinois, which is a really big deal. And it also included some provisions to try to limit and monitor electronic monitoring and make it something that is less easy to prescribe and has more scrutiny over it. So there's never abolitionist legislation, right? Like this is not an abolitionist bill, but the hope of those who were pushing for it was that it would encompass some of those things that we're worried about in terms of what reform can do. My concerns also with the way that bail reform is playing out in some places is that they're turning a lot to risk assessment, which we mention in a couple of places in our book. And the idea of risk assessment as an alternative to bond is, oh, well, bond has nothing to do with risk. That's just about whether someone can pay their way out. Really, we need to be keeping people incarcerated 
if they're quote unquote dangerous. So they're using this risk assessment tool that then can just keep people in jail with no bond and all the risk assessment tools are racist. You know, they're ableist and discriminated in various ways, but they're all like racist is the common denominator. And so I think that we're in a spot where we really have to be wary of the way data can be portrayed as neutral. And while it's not humans, it's data. And so it can't be biased. That's what I would say about bond reform. Like as we think through how we approach it, we have to be looking at what could potentially expand as a result and how do we limit that? And how do we stop that before it starts, if that makes sense. I really want to talk about social workers. There's a line I love in here. You say, sometimes the police are called social workers and the punishment is called care. So I want to say that, and Vicki, this is a quote from you, I think that you had in an interview I'd watched with both of you had talked about like the policing mentality that kind of gets embedded in social work. And I want to say that when we did the public study group of your book, we actually intentionally outreached to social workers and educators. And so within the group, there were advocates from a crisis center. There was someone from a addiction recovery center. There was a number of people from the restorative community justice center. There were two teachers in the group and we unfortunately did not get anyone from DCF. And we really wanted that. I think I'm covering all of the places that we had. So it was like, it was a really interesting mix of people. Yeah, I wanna hear your thoughts around it. You you talk about how social workers are not like a benevolent entity. And if you could speak about that a little bit. I think that we think of social workers as people and people may go into social work thinking that they're going to be helpful to people. They're going to help support people. But what we have to remember is that the way that the system works is that it continues to place more and more requirements on social workers to act like police. For instance, social workers are mandatory reporters. So if they suspect that there is child abuse or child neglect, they must report this to the department of, they must report this to child welfare authorities. And they go by different names in each city. So, you know, it might be DCF in one place. It might be a CPS here in New York City, Child Protective Services. And then what happens is an investigation gets launched by social workers with that agency. So these are people who are trained as social workers, joined because they had the best intentions of helping families or helping children. And instead, what they're tasked, they end up being tasked to do is to examine a family and find any shortcomings that may or may not have anything to do with whether or not the child is cared for and loved. But if a family lives in substandard housing, which in many urban areas, maybe even in some like other non-urban areas, is not necessarily the family's fault. You cannot force your landlord to get rid of the lead paint if your landlord does not want to do this. You cannot force your landlord to turn on the heat, even though there are laws that say, at least in New York, that say, you know, when the temperatures dip below a certain point, you must turn on the heat. If the landlord does not want to turn on that boiler, that boiler does not get turned on. You cannot force the landlord to make necessary repairs to your apartment. So the social worker shows up and says, that window over there is busted. 
you know, the child could fall out that window. This heat isn't working right. It's actually pretty cold in here and I can see my breath. Oh, and that wall, that wall is from 1972 and that looks like lead paint. The social worker then doesn't go to the Department of Building to say violate this landlord for having substandard housing. The social worker says, now you must find housing that is lead paint free, doesn't have broken windows, you know, has heat, or else we will find you guilty of child neglect, which could mean at the worst, we take away your child until you get better housing. But it could also mean we're going to make you jump through a lot of hoops and surveil you so that any little slip up, you're late picking your child up from school one day or one day too many because, you know, your job doesn't let you out on time or you're forced to work a little bit longer because a coworker didn't show up. And suddenly you're under the microscope for every little thing. And so social workers then become deputized to police families, not to necessarily give people other options, although they supposedly are able to do that too. Like, here's how you apply for food stamps. Here's how you this. But they cannot make a slumlord have better housing. They cannot make it so that if somebody lives in a food desert, that the supermarkets will magically start carrying fruits and vegetables at an affordable rate. So they, they cannot do any of these things, but what they can do is penalize families who do not have access to these things. What we're seeing is social workers becoming another arm of the state, doing what police often do, which is to devastate families without providing any means of social support. People think social workers do wonderful things. And again, people most likely join, sign up to be social workers, not because they say, I want to rip apart families. Right. I want to target the most disenfranchised, marginalized children and parents and rip them apart and devastate them. They're saying, I want to help, but then they're working in a system that actually doesn't allow them to help. There's also the implicit bias inherent in this. So a social worker may walk in to somebody's house and then be like, oh, I have years, if not decades of societal conditioning that this type of person, a black mother, a, you know, uh, this weird queer parent over here, this gender non-conforming person, you know, whatever, this immigrant person from this place is always a suspicious or a bad parent. So people yeah. come in with these implicit biases but they don't necessarily go into, say, like a wealthy suburban house and say like, oh, this well-off lawyer is going to be a suspicious person, you know, and I should put them under the microscope and look for some little, every little thing to say, like, improve that, improve that, improve that. Yeah. So we also have to remember that they target people who have already been targeted by so many other systems. Yeah. Uh, there's something I want to read to you here because I feel like it ties so much into what you're saying. And so I'm just going to read it because I want to get your reactions. It's it's a 1981 article written by Patricia Morgan around the state's shaping of social problems. It's something I'm really interested in is understanding the role of, of social services within capitalism. And she what she calls it is the social problem apparatus. And she says... Encompassing both social welfare and criminal justice bureaucracies, this apparatus has a particular historical purpose made increasingly relevant since the civil rights and anti-war movements of the 1960s. The essential purpose is to keep those conflicts and contradictions which arise out of maintaining order separate from the relations of production and thus depoliticized this is done by labeling as social problems, which are in fact political and economic. Hence the growth of quote unquote social problems 
and an apparatus designed to manage them, especially among the more marginal sectors of the working class, women, minorities, and youth. And so I would love for you to talk about these, what she's saying are like social issues become depoliticized. Yeah, it makes me think about something that Angela Davis wrote. I think it was in Our Prisons Obsolete, but I'm not sure. She talks about how prisons disappear problems Mm -hmm. that are broad, important political problems like homelessness and, you know, widespread addiction, you know, that we don't interrogate why that exists and poverty and all kinds of violence. And why these things are happening is not questions. It's like the problems are disappeared into prisons. And that's a mechanism for managing them. So I think like the social welfare system as it stands, which is not a real social welfare system, under austerity, it's in certain ways just a way of providing providing these minimum benefits while surveilling people and like minimum benefits that people need to survive, you know, not minimizing that, but just it should be so much more it should be so much more abundant and it shouldn't come with the surveillance that it comes with. And I think also about how when we interviewed Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's one of the first people we interviewed for our book, she said that over the past several decades, what has been prioritized again and again is defense in all its forms Mm. within the United States. So that's militarism and war that policing and incarceration, and then infused into all the other systems. So the education system and the so-called social welfare system and all of these systems, the defense part is what's emphasized, the so-called security part, all of that. And it's assumed that that's where the resources are needed and that all of those things need to be resourced before we can even think about anything else, rather than realizing that the everything else is actually what could address many of the problems that these defense systems are pretending to address. So I think that's, yep. that's at least a little part of the answer. That's great. That's really helpful. Maya, you had said that we have to challenge our own mindsets I saw you say this in an interview that it's it's also like within us. And then Vicky, you had pointed out this Mariam Kaba clip about how she had, I think it was when you interviewed her, she said, we need to get the cops out of our hearts and minds. So I think those, those two statements are connected. And in the group discussion that we did here in Brattleboro, one of the participants said how our own like individualism can be our own enemy. So I was wondering if you could talk either one of you a little bit about that of like how it's entrenched in our head also and what we need to do about that. I mean, I think that one of the things that we're conditioned all the time from a very young age, like children and adults, you know, just get this constant barrage of like, police are your friends, police are the good guys, whether it be like children's shows that are on now with like cute, friendly cop animals, or, you know, like Law and Order, that's been like running for however many decades and all these cop shows uh, that have friendly cops. So we have this idea of police as, you know, officer friendly. And it doesn't matter how many 
viral videos we see of police brutalizing people. It's going against this ingrained notion from early childhood that when you get lost or when you need help, go find a cop type of thing. So we have that, first of all. And then we're constantly told, you know, to address social problems that have been divorced from politics, as Maya talked about, that somehow like policing is going to help it, either like turning to police or turning ourselves or turning our other institutions into policing. There's this idea that like you can either do policing or you can do nothing. You know, you can be the eyes and ears of the community, but being the eyes and ears of the community isn't like, hey, I haven't seen you in like five weeks come out of your house. Like, are you okay? Do you need anything? It, I think something is going on, I have to call the police. Or I think this person is acting shady, I need to call the police. Instead of building relationships and community with people that allow us to actually meet each other's needs. Yeah. So I think that that's one of the things that we constantly have to be on guard about. So like, do we respond to things that make us uncomfortable with more punishment? Or do we respond to ways and sometimes we can even just say you know that person is not bothering me. Mm -hmm. it does not matter you know that person is not bothering me it is perhaps annoying I live in New York City um, I am the only building on my block with a stoop mm -hmm. uh, so people sit on our stoop quite often sometimes it is annoying you know mm -hmm. especially when they don't get out of your way when you're trying to go in or out sometimes they smoke crack on my stoop that is also annoying but the solution that my building has come up with is not to call the police. We, we just don't, mm -hmm. you know, because what will that do? There's a big conversation kind of going on around restorative justice, transformative justice, and how tricky that is with intimate partner violence. And so I would so love your thoughts on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Sometimes the way in which that conversation arises is as if all abolitionists are arguing for people to get into a restorative justice circle with their rapists and just sit down and figure out how to forgive them. And that's, I think, one of the things that's most exciting about abolitionist approaches to the most brutal violence is that A, it depends on the situation. It's about actually addressing the situation that's going on instead of these weird cookie cutter systems that actually don't bring justice to anyone, let alone reparations. But also that abolitionists are actually looking for solutions. <laughs> like looking for, okay, what's going to substantially reduce violence? Some abolitionists are saying we need to end partner violence. You know, there's some disagreements within the community about whether that can ever happen. And we need to end gender-based violence. And so that's where a lot of abolitionists are coming from. Like many of the people who are the most vocal and known abolitionists right now started in anti-violence work, including Miriam Kaba, who we've talked about, and came at this work from the perspective of women and survivors and victims of gender-based violence are not getting justice and are not getting any type of restitution and are basically being silenced by this system. And then also not only do only a teeny, 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 tiny percentage of perpetrators ever get sentenced to anything, but also prisons themselves are institutions of sexual violence. So knowing that hurt people hurt people, do we really think 
that sending rapists to prison is going to do anything to support them in not being rapists anymore. I know I had this pen pal for a while who was incarcerated in solitary in Pelican Bay in California. And he had been convicted of rape. And he was always telling me in his letters, and this annoyed the hell out of me, to put it mildly, he's always like, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, telling me what he did. And I was like, no, that's actually rape. That's actually, <laughs> and, but he didn't know it because this country does not have any sort of sexual health education. And so, and, you know, patriarchy is so embedded that people don't even know what rape is to the extent that they're defending themselves by describing their actual rape. And of course, this person is in solitary confinement, is going to be incarcerated for 12 years, just sitting there thinking that he's quote unquote innocent. <laughs> And then he's going to get out, right? So it's like, how does that serve society for him to like go in, be further traumatized while thinking he didn't rape anybody? I just, I think about that. And then I think about, like, okay, when we approach transformative justice, we're approaching it through the lens of both aspects. Both we have to deal with the specific situation that happened, what the survivor is actually looking for, what they need for some kind of justice or restitution or whatever angle they're looking for. What are the things that they want from the perpetrator and from the community? And what do they need personally in terms of supporting them and healing? And then also transformative justice is looking at the broader society and saying, what were the conditions that made it possible for this to happen? and simultaneously working to change those. So transformative justice actually came about in response to sexual violence. Generation Five and other organizations that kind of formulated the concept of transformative justice were responding to, in Generation Five's case, child sexual abuse. And I think that that's important to mention because it's not like, okay, we're trying to use this solution that was built or this strategy and practice that was used to address stealing $10 worth of stuff from the store. And then we're trying to foist it upon problems like sexual violence. But no, it was actually created to, to respond to this issue. And because other good solutions were not widely available. And one more thing I'll say about that. So if you look at current formations like the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, the Just Practice Collaborative, they're doing the work of transformative justice in this way where they're also doing kind of public education efforts and trainings and making it very clear that we all need to skill up. We all need to develop these skills, whether, you know, not everyone's going to be a transformative justice practitioner, but we all need to build our skills in relation to solving our problems in our community. Because if we really want to get the cops out of our hearts and our minds, then we're going to need to learn how to address some of these 
issues ourselves. And I love how the founders of the Just Practice Collaborative, which include Shira Hassan and Miriam Kaba and Dina Lewis and some other folks, say, we're calling ourselves Just Practice because we're going to make mistakes all the time. Transformative justice is not a blueprint. It's not like, okay, here you go. This is how you deal with sexual yeah. violence. It's like, we have to just be practicing making mistakes, being accountable, figuring out like the ways in which we weren't accountable, just doing it, doing it, doing it. And, and that's how, how we're going to move toward a better way. For sure. And in particular, like with the, with um, gender-based violence, you know, I always in those conversations to point out that it was the women of color for many, many decades have been saying, we don't want the carceral system. Yes. There's also a lot of conversation going on around, car- I mean, the ongoing kind of carceral feminism discussions. But I think this is like another great time to bring those discussions back up and to remember that there have been people that have been talking about this for so long. Uh, one of the things I also want to ask you in the community book club we had, one of the questions that I asked, like myself and the other facilitator asked at one, at, we were like midway in the book and we said, what are the biggest, what do you all think are the biggest threats to community safety and well-being?" And so I want to ask you to, because that question came from reading your book. If someone if say, say to you today here in, in 2021, what would you name as the biggest threats to community safety and our well-being? The reliance on policing and prisons to keep us safe because it closes off the imagination to anything else that could happen. So if my solution, but there's a rise in Asian American and violence against Asians and Asian Americans in the United States, thanks to that orange man that was in the White House. Mm-hmm. And so there's been this rise and alongside the small media coverage that's been happening around this violence have been calls by people in the Asian and Asian American community to say, don't take this as a call to f- for more policing. Like we have stood side by side, we have marched with defund the police and Black Lives Matter. This is not a call to increase that. But if your view is policing in prisons equals safety, you're not thinking about what are the other ways in which you can create safety for people who are on the street and who are facing an increase in violence. And that can be transferred or used in other scenarios. If your only solution to interpersonal violence, domestic violence, family violence, uh, sexual violence is policing, you're not thinking how else can I or we as a community intervene and make somebody safe? Mm-hmm. How can we transform the conditions as it were to see, to make sure, to center the survivor and their needs? Because maybe the survivor doesn't want that person to end up being policed and prosecuted and caged. Maybe they want that person to simply stay in their relationship and stop the harm. Child sexual abuse survivors have said over and over, you know, I didn't call, I didn't want the police to lock up my father or my brother or my whoever, you know, like uh, somebody who is close to them because I love that person that is my family member or my loved one, but I want this harm to stop. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this reliance on policing in prisons is, a, I think, the biggest threat because it just precludes all of our thinking about everything else and just drills it down to, you either police or you have nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't call the police, then too bad, so sad if you're not safe. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely that. And I would also say racial capitalism and climate emergency and mm-hmm. interconnected with environmental injustice. We see these things flaring up. Obviously, the pandemic is a really important example and the resulting economic downturn and mm-hmm. you know the recent floods and power shutoffs, the wildfires, like all of these things that are killing people and devastating their lives. People are viewing as these kind of disconnected catastrophes, natural disasters. And I just feel like unless we recognize those links and recognize those things as threats in our communities, not this kind of like abstract global threat, but threats in our immediate communities that are threatening our ourselves, our families, neighborhoods, those, those are very present, immediate threats. And I think this year should alert us to that more than ever. And I think that one of the things that that really pulled me toward abolition and Ruth Wilson and Gilmer talks about this in our book is that abolition is about building the society that actually addresses those threats. So environmental justice work is abolitionist work, is work against incarceration, she says in our book. Justice for farm workers, fair wages for farm workers, that's working against incarceration and toward abolition. You know, when we think about all the all the different economic systems and practices that we have to challenge in order for people to get those things that we were talking about earlier that the so-called safety net doesn't provide, that's working against incarceration and toward abolition. So I think, yeah, when when I think about threats, I'm like, okay, what's the next pandemic? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the next time that the tornado is going to tear through here? You know, what's the next time there's going to be this wave of joblessness that then forces tens of millions of people in this country into actual hunger, devastating food insecurity? So yeah. I think just to end here, I I actually would just love to know what you're working on now. Yeah, what's next for both of you? Vicky has an actual exciting thing to say. (laughs) Okay, so I have a a new book coming out uh, on April 6th. It is a solo book. So I'm going to miss Maya on my like never ending virtual book tour, but I'm sure Maya will be very relieved to not be on Zoom all the time. <laughs> she, she will sit there and drink her mojito in Chicago and be like, hi, I'm not looking at a screen. <laughs> See, there she is right now, drinking away, waving at me. <laughs> um, so it's, it, it's, um, if this book, if Prison by Any Other Name is like sort of like a 201 or 301 book for people who already know about prisons and are like, what should we do to reform prisons and not realizing that many of the popular reforms actually grow the system and bring it into our homes and communities. This book, which is called Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration is more of a 101 for people who come into this movement through Mm. Black Lives Matter, defund the police, you know, reading about it in the news over the past year or two. 
And it looks at and debunks many of the popular myths around mass incarceration, like the private prison corporations are the entities that have been driving the uptick in uh, people being locked up and mass incarceration policies. Prison labor is the driving force. So, mm. because if you think about prisons and you rely on these myths as the drivers, if you think that prisons make you safer, you know, having more people in prisons somehow will eradicate sexual violence and physical violence and all sorts of other societal ills, then if you operate off of any of these myths, you're not going to find a solution because your solution will be flawed. Then you end up with the solutions we talk about in prison by any other name. So it's looking at some of the myths that have become very popular about why mass incarceration exists, who's in prison. And then it also looks at some of the solutions such as, you know, what is restorative justice? What is transformative justice? That is the thing that is coming up is, you know, my new book, which That's great. again is a, a 101 that looks at all of these things so people can come to you know, the idea of like, what is mass incarceration and have a firm understanding and not think that it's caused by this, that, or the other, which are actually just um, parasites on mass incarceration, not actually the drivers of it. Mm -hmm. Extremely useful. And I will say that in doing this with prison by any other name, there were so many people in the group, um, I'm thinking about like certain chapters where people were like, I had no idea like especially the chapter around DC, DCF and uh, child services, chapters on mental health of like, yeah, I had no, I had no idea the extent of some of this. So Maya, what are you up to in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, most of my time right now, from eight to 4.30, I'm running truth out. And then after that, I'm taking care of my toddler. <laughs> so that's, that's mainly what I'm doing. And then occasionally I'll do something else like late at night. I'm part of a collective in Chicago called Love and Protect, which organizes to support criminalized survivors of color, um, particularly in Illinois. And specifically, a lot of times, survivors who are incarcerated for defending themselves against violence. So that's some of the work I do. I'm on the board of the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and that just passed this big bail reform bill. And, you know, occasionally I'll write something, but I'm not looking at a huge new writing project right now but I mean I am excited about a lot of the work that Truthout's doing and over the past year we've developed this road to abolition series in response to the uprising because we have this vast archive of abolitionist pieces you know we were kind of trying to do abolitionist journalism before it was cool (laughs) and so (laughs) So we're, you know, we brought together a little bit of that, but then also we just published a whole lot of pieces throughout this year from organizers and journalists who are kind of digging deeper and trying to look at specific issues within this work in ways that are actually going to make it more possible for more people to imagine abolition. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I want to say that your book is a gem and that it really like it's such a good read. And also I should also say is that not only did we do a public study group, but we did an internal study of the book at the crisis center. Cool. And 
Yeah, and had conversations about how does this relate to our work? We operate really differently than some other social services. When we did the public study group, I should mention too, there were also, because I forgot to mention this, there were also two mental health workers in the group. And it brought together like such a, all these different people from social services and we really, as the facilitators, we're doing this discussion, but we hope you take this back to your workplace. And what I like about this book is you can take out the chapter on mental health and read that at your office and talk about it. So yeah, thank you for all your work. It's so useful. And our librarian got a couple copies of the book. So people here Aww. in our town can get it from the library. And we also got it at the local independent bookstore for people to get. So thank you so much. And thank you for spending time with me tonight. Absolutely. That does it for Indigo Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. And a huge thanks to Vicki Law and Maya Shenoir for uh, joining us and for writing their book. Definitely recommend a read. We're going to go out with Wanda Jackson with Jack White. Riot in cell block number nine. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week.
o'clock in the morning, I was sleeping in my cell. Heard a whistle blow, and I heard somebody else. In cell block number four Spread like fire Across the prison floor A warden came in With a big Tommy gun Bang, bang, bang Trying to stop our fun But there's a ride going on Tall and fine. All the chicks are crazy up in cell. 